This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. It's episode 322 of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast, and I'm again here in Portland, Oregon for a a podcast I've been actually wanting to do for a couple of years now. My guest is Nat West of Reverend Nat Sider. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. Funny, funny story about this one. Mm -hmm. I met Nat where we met in the most interesting and unusual of places. Right. Um, I was, it was a couple, like two years ago, mountain biking in Moab. I was just out there in Moab with family vacation with my wife and my kids. They do not mountain bike or very much. And so I, I signed up for a shuttle to go mm-hmm. ride uh, the, the portion of the whole enchilada trail that was still open at that time. It was still early in the Classic year. mountain biking ride in Classic, Moab. Just a big, big, I've done yep. the full thing before. Yep. You know, we can only go so far. Anyway, hop on this shuttle ride and you know, as it is, you just, you know, they, they, anyone who signs up for the mm-hmm. shuttle at that time from whichever of the bike shops, you know, they just throw you all in together. Somebody drives you, yep. everybody up there. Well, we're driving up. There's only three people on the three shuttle. three people in the shuttle. Yeah. Adam was the other one. Yep, yep. Nat and then me. Um, we didn't know each other at the right. time. We start you know, just, just chit-chatting. Oh, what do you do? It's like, you know, I work in the beer industry. Ooh, it's yeah. like, oh, what do you do? Oh, well, I'm in the beer industry too. And then Adam, our, my buddy who I came with, he owns a bar, sh- a, a, a beer bottle shop as well. So yeah, we're all, and then I remember you go, are you, are you Reverend Nat? And I'm like, as a matter of fact, I am. Uh, so yeah, we had a great time on that ride, and we stayed in touch ever since. It's been a fun. Well, yeah, we we spent the the rest of the day riding uh, the yeah. bottom part of a uh, whole enchilada trail or porcupine rim. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and we all came, you know, ten toes, ten fingers, no flat tires. So it was a successful ride and yeah. a lot of fun, and it was yeah. much better than me riding it by myself. So yeah, absolutely, awesome here fun. we are. And so you know, f- since then, I was like, ah, oh, I should definitely do a podcast with Nat whenever mm-hmm. it's convenient. And then uh, I, it was last week where you're like, we the news came out, like Reverend Nats is going to wind yeah, down you, business. you're running out of time. You got to get it. And then so I was like, okay, I happen to be coming to Portland. Let's make this happen. Of course. And here we are mm-hmm. uh, to capture Reverend Nats' approach to cider making, beer-influenced, beer-inspired yes. approach yes. to cider making. Yes. And that's what we're going to talk about here in this episode, that beer-ish approach to cider making. Mm-hmm. Before we do that, G&D Chillers, the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, are proud of the cool partnerships they've built over the past 30 years. G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with 24-7 service and support. Want to maximize efficiency in your chiller? G&D's micro-channel condensers are designed for less power draw. Their lighter weight and more compact design uses up to 70% less refrigerant which means a lower GWP and lower operating costs. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call to discuss your next project. Also, support for this episode comes from BSG, looking for a sustainable way to increase fermenter capacity. Try FirmCap Eco from Kerry. Developed as a part of Kerry's Eco Brewing range, FirmCap Eco is a plant-based alternative to traditional silicon-based products. FirmCap Eco increases fermenter capacity by reducing foam height, 
to improve beer foam stability and enhance hop utilization. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact your BSG sales rep to get started. And is your brewery making its own ciders, seltzers, and other beverages beyond beer? If you need a central source for fruit flavor, Old Orchard has you covered. Old Orchard supplies flavored craft juice concentrate blends to beverage brands for the production of beer, cider, seltzer, wine, spirits, kombucha, and more. Flavor your lineup and streamline your sourcing by heading on over to oldorchard.com slash brewer. Now, we normally kick things off with some background, so why don't you talk to us about yours? Mm. What uh, what took you down this road? How'd you end up here? How'd, what made you decide to start a cidery? Yeah, I, well, this cider is, cider. This business has been around for 12 years now. I started the business in my base, uh, my basement, actually at home, in 2012. And I, I had the idea, in 2011, I was um, uh, sitting around the table drinking some a homemade cider that I had made. I've been making cider for a few years prior to starting the business. And uh, some of my neighbors were there. We were having you know dinner and beers and they were home brewers. And uh, I was making cider. And, and at the, I remember this night very clearly sitting on a big, big, a big kitchen table. And I had some cider that I'd made from a, um, an orchard that grew really great apples, cider specific apples. And, um, uh, we were all drinking this cider and really enjoying it. And somebody brought out a bottle of a commercially produced cider. And, and I happen to know that that cider was made using the same uh, apples from the same orchard. So it had a commercially produced version and, you know, my home version. And, um, you know, you can guess what happened next. Everyone loved mine and hated that one. <laughs> uh, they're no longer in business. Um, so, but neither am I. So anyway, um, but we, um, that was my really real impetus to, um, for the sake of the apple, this was a fantastic orchard with growing fantastic fruit. And I felt like this um, cider maker wasn't really doing the best job that he uh, could have done with this fruit. So I kind of did it for the, for the fruit, you know, for the good of the fruit. Uh, I started the business in my basement. You thought there was a better flavor opportunity. I mean, which is really the yeah. story of craft beer, right? right? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I th- you know, I, I, one of our early taglines is the apple's deepest purpose realized. And I have this sort of mind game that I play with myself. Imagine you're an apple and you're hanging on a tree and you know, you're, you lean over, you talk to your other apple buddy and you're like, Hey, what are you going to be when you grow up? Oh, I'm going to be, uh, in a kid's lunchbox and he's probably going to throw me away. Uh, or, oh no, I'm going to be hard cider and get somebody drunk. Like, that's like, I think that would be, if I was an apple, that's what I want to be turned yeah. into is to at, turn into alcohol. So, um, it was really, You're uh, going for the party apples. It was really, <laughs> yeah. 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 Woo. Yeah. So there, so that was kind of my mission there was just to make really good cider and, and, um, you know, approach it from a beer angle. And that's not, I'm not, I'm not saying that just cause this is a beer podcast. I've always brought my, my beer background and beer appreciation to my cider making, even from the very earliest days. Sure, sure. So, you know, talk to me about getting started. How, how does that? How did that start influencing what products you wanted to make? Right. You know, because your approach to cider making is is a little unconventional yeah. re- relative to the yeah. mainstream of the cider world. Totally. So, I mean, in the beginning, there was two different process, two different steps. One is getting juice out of apples. I was starting with whole mm-hmm. apples. And yeah. That's a relatively Googleable question. Um, it's, it's not an art to getting juice out of apples. It's more of a science. Squeeze them hard, basically. Yeah. Um, but I had this juice. There's, um, there's plenty of you know processing background information yeah. around that. And there's not a lot of like, you, you just go for the maximum yield and the, the quickest turnaround. That's kind of it, right? Um, but then you have this juice, or in the case of, a, of beer making, you'd have sweet wort. And you'd, you don't know what yeast to put in there. You don't know what temperature to ferment it at. You don't know how long or 
um, or what other ingredients potentially to add. And so I um, reached out to my home brewer friends that were sitting around the table with me. And I was like, hey, what should I use for this um, this cider? And one of the guys was like, hey, I have this Saison yeast packet. It's a little bit old. You should just throw that in. So I did. And it was incredible. Um, and then only only after I made a few batches of cider that I go back and buy cider books, uh, how-to cider books, and then go to the homebrew store. And and I was having these, you know, the books and the, the homebrew store advice was the opposite of what I was, what I had been doing. Um, it, the first cider that I ever had was my own. I didn't know what cider was supposed to taste yeah, like. Yeah. So I think that was really the, the, the kernel. Saison yeast and no yeast nutrient. You just made cider yeah. that way. Oh, and I okay. put hops in the second cider I ever made. Oh, hey. Um, so it was really, um, approaching it from a homebrewer's perspective, but also, um, I, 99% of what I drink is beer. I'm a, I'm a beer drinker and a cider sure. maker. Um, so, so, so I have a lot of beer knowledge and it's bringing just like that. all the winemakers, you know I mean? Really? <laughs> it's a lot of, there's a lot of beer to make good exactly, wine. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I've always brought my love of beer into it and, and always tried to make cider for beer drinkers specifically. And so, yeah, hops is an obvious one. Beer yeast is an obvious one. And there's a lot of process that we do that's um, more familiar to a brewery than it would be in like a winery, for instance. There's also the question that you have, which is, uh, you know, where to get not not just how to press those apples. But how to get characterful apple, you know, juice. Oh, sure. Yeah. Which is probably, you know, an issue that cider makers, as cider has grown more developed now in the United States, more and more, you know, a lot of those heirloom apples are not planted in the kind of quantity yeah. that cider makers want. Yeah, I mean, I'm how not, do you, how do you, how do you parse that one out? Is that not as a big yeah. focus? Yeah. That was like the thing in uh, the mid 2000s, 2010s. That was like the story of American cider was we yeah. can't get enough good apples. And that was, a lie, really, because um, cider... Hot, hot take. I love it. <laughs> Bring it on. Um, cider is a regional drink wherever it's made around the world. And cider makers around the world make cider using fruit that's grown in their neighborhood, in their region, in their state or province or county or whatever. And they ferment it using uh, uh, yeast and other techniques that are you know, endemic in their environment. And they make it for the local drinkers to drink. So cider that's made in... Uh, the West Country of England, it tastes that way for a reason versus cider that's made in like Dorset tastes different for a reason. And Northern France is different from Southern France and Spain and Asturias and Basque country tastes different. And, um, you know, the Pacific Northwest is its own um, a kind of uh, food culture and, and beer culture. So I make cider. I always approach cider making as for a regional audience and and we grow the best apples in the best eating apples in the world in the pacific northwest um the washington state grows more apples than the rest of the u.s combined and the united states of america grows the second largest producer of apples in the world after china the vast majority of china's crop goes to uh, concentrate so washington state grows the eating apples for the world basically so we have access to extremely high quality, very low priced apples, uh, 365 days a year. So those are the apples that I'm going to use. Um, you know, we eat salmon in the Pacific Northwest because it grows, you know, it's, you, we catch it here, grows yeah. here. So for the same reason, I, I'm using these com these commodity grocery store apples like Granny Smith, Gala, Golden Delicious, Pink Lady, Fuji, things like that. So the question for me wasn't like, oh, I can't get the good apples. The question for me was, I have this agricultural product here that is the best in the world and it produces alcohol. What am I going to do to make it delicious and represent more representative of the, the area that we live in? So 
you know, the, Portland is the best beer city in the world. I still think that Portland is the best beer city in the world, maybe not the biggest or whatever, but the most diverse and most interesting. Um, so it makes a lot of sense for the kinds of ciders that I would make if I want them to be representative of Pacific Northwest to have a strong beer influence in them. I have to remain more political in my, uh, my approach to that, but I will acknowledge that yes, Portland is one of the great beer one cities. Of. I'll take one of. It is one of the great beer cities. I, I love Portland and uh, the brewers that this city uh, has produced and continues to produce are really just some of the best yeah, in the world. Certainly, world which class. is why I've been spending this last week uh, working with some of them to build video classes for our all access program. Excellent. But that's that's an aside. Um, let's talk about how you went about. Um, you know, creating what you say Mm. you've done, which is building cider that's geared towards, uh, you know, this, this Portland idea of ingredients, but also what drinkers want out of that. Um, and what form that took. And then some of the technical process that went into that before we do that, take your brewing to the next level with AccuBrew's revolutionary fermentation monitoring system now predicting specific gravity. AccuBrew's mobile app and stainless steel sensor work together to send you live data from inside your tanks, including predicted gravity, fermentation activity, clarity, and temperature. Unlike other fermentation monitoring systems, AccuBrew is CIP ready and designed to stay out of your way, saving you time and space. Their set it and forget it solution streamlines systems and processes, helps maintain consistency, and detects problems before they ruin a batch. Join the AccuBrew community today and experience 24-7 peace of mind. Also, ProBrew is excited to announce that they are currently featuring short lead times that's between two and four weeks for their in-stock ProFill rotary can fillers. These can fillers run at speeds between 100 and 600 cans per minute while achieving precise and consistent filling volumes not achievable by most inline and mobile fillers. For more information, fill out their contact form at www.probrew.com or email contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how they can take your operations to the next level. Probrew, brew your beer. And if you're in the area, uh, I'll be up there at the Probrew uh, Oktoberfest gathering in October. And uh, so in uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin, come join us. Nat, Let's talk about uh, you know where the rubber meets the roads. You you start Reverend Nats with mm-hmm. his goal to make cider for the Pacific Northwest mm. and to do it with this you know with local apples or, or regionally grown apples that are close by, um, and uh, marrying that to the kind of flavor and innovation that craft brewers right. would expect. Right. Um, what form did that start to take? You know what what became some of the key products. And then uh, let's talk, start talking about how you've honed those sure. key w- over, uh, products over the years. Yes, I mentioned earlier the second cider I ever made had hops in it. And um, that extended into um, the first cider that I ever actually sold was a cider that we no longer make called Hallelujah Hoppercott. And that cider really put us on the map as um, innovators and as beer-centric in, uh, cider makers. Um, Hoppercott, hops, and apricot, we used... Uh, Cascade and Amarillo. Um, you know, at the time, Amarillo, this is in 2012, Amarillo was, you know, the hot shit, right? Um, and so we were really fortunate to get into that hop pretty early. Um, and Apricot was also, also mentioned you're here in Portland, there are hop fields, you know, 45 minutes yeah, from here. Yep. Uh, you've got great access to yeah, a lot of great yeah, ingredients yeah. there. Exactly. And so, you know, I've had the privilege of being able to 
uh, when Crosby came out with their um, Idaho 7 hop a number of years ago, they gave it to us before it was released and said, hey, can you make a cider with this just so we can throw some trademarks on its use in cider? And mm. I was like, sure, before it was released. So that was a really nice thing. Um, yeah, so Hoppercott was, um, you know, a Cascade and Amarillo. It was a classic dry hopped. We used, you know, IPA dry hopping volumes and amounts of time. Um, and then we used some, some apricot juice. And if the, you know, if you, if you, for the older or the older brewers in the, in the audience, if you remember back, um, apricot hefeweizen was like a thing. Everybody made one, um, back in the day. And so apricot was a very, uh, go-to ingredient in, in the brewing world. So it made sense for me to try it. And yeah, we were able to get a lot of like, um, the more like the pit of the apricot to come out. The secret was that we actually use 75% peach and 25% apricot. <laughs> uh, so it's like, but, but a uh, hopper peach or didn't. They're didn't so say. close. They're so yeah. close. So, um, yeah, that, that cider got us into uh, a famous, um, Pete Brown book called the world's best ciders. He was paying attention to ciders in, in 2012 and 2013. He still does. Um, you know, that cider put us on the, put us on the map as far as like unusualness. Um, you know, I think his quote in the, in the world's best ciders book for that one was, uh, sounds like it could be, you know, a giant mistake, but it was actually really good and represents what happens when you have like a restrained hand in, in doing the blending. And I think, you know, the success that I had early success that I had with Hoppercott really made me focus on cider making as, um, as a craft, as a, um, a, a process, a bit more like the way a chef would approach uh, making a dish, as opposed to how a winemaker says, oh, grow the best grapes and then get out of the way. And that's very much not my um, my approach. My approach is assemble the best ingredients, find the best ingredients from wherever they may be, um, and then use a, a variety of processes to um, to blend and, and to um, you know, mingle all the flavors together in the right balance, in the right proportions. You know, a winemaker can't overdo the amount of Pinot they put into their Pinot, but any brewer can easily overdo the amount of ingredient X they put into their IPA. My cider making approach is all about really honing in on those nuanced differences between, you know, uh, five pounds of, of hops for five days or six pounds for three days or seven pounds for three days and then two pounds for two days. Um, pellets versus whole, cryo, et cetera. You know, we explore, explored all those things, which is extremely common for for uh, sure, brewers. Sure. I'm not saying anything that's unusual um, from a beer perspective, but cider makers in the, who are listening to this episode, they're going to be like, what is he talking about? Because they don't, the cider making language, cider makers language does not include um, the same language, the same vocabulary that, that brewers have. I know winemakers love to pretend that they do so little with their wine. Oh, and uh, sure, I sure. think there's a fair amount of storytelling that goes along with yeah. that. And when you see just how involved some of that, that winemaking gets, uh, you know, yeah. maybe a little bit more involved yeah, than, yeah. than they want but to But yeah, that, that is the storytelling for sure. And I've, I've, yeah. been, I've been very open about embracing the complexity of, of sure. the process that we go through to make our ciders. And, and not just things like apricot, but, you know, things like tapache. And we've done lactobacillus fermentations. And we've done a, a variety of like uh, boiled ciders as well, which is very beer, beer reminiscent as well. You can read Kate Bernat's story on making tapache. Uh, it was out earlier this year in yep. Craft Beer and Brewing. Mm-hmm. Features yep. that, and I think there's a, I think there's the recipe along with that too. Yeah, there so, is. Yeah. So go to the beer Craft Beer and Brewing archives and check that out because you are a subscriber, aren't you? Of course you are. Um, well, let's talk about uh, you know when you're building cider, where your goal is also to layer in other flavors. Um, what what do 
how do you build the foundation for that? Mm. You know, in terms of, you know, some mechanics around that, are there some specific apples that you find have the kind of support or substance? Do you change that at all? Right. Um, you know, are there some gravity goals you go full, full mm -hmm. dry and then sweeten back? Talk to me about some of the, the framework for building these, sure. uh, you know, so that, you know, because as we all know, like if you are going to layer in these other flavors and are not just looking for that light and crisp thing, then, uh, uh, you know, well, I shouldn't say these might still be light and crisp, but also yeah, flavor. yeah, other um, things. You know, buildings building a cider that can stand up to some of these flavors, right. You know, is a little different than maybe just going for that uh, pure yeah. expression. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, so I think there's just as much opportunity. I think there's more opportunity for flavor experimentation in cider than there is in beer because the cider consumer is a little bit more open to whatever ingredient is in there. And there are not just the beer purists. I think the average beer drinker is a little bit hesitant to have raspberry in their beer, for, let's say. But there's no cider maker, cider drinker in America who's hesitant to have a raspberry cider. That's just like completely just, normal. There are, those beer drinkers are all in different camps, right? You know, there's yeah. the beer drinker that absolutely never wants to have fruit in their beer. And then there's beer drinkers that love fruit in their beer. Right. But there's enough of each that it's not everybody. And, yeah, and, and you could potentially offend someone, but yeah. you're going to offend no cider drinkers by putting raspberry in Well, you're already, cider. you're talking about cider. So we've already, we're at a point where fruit is okay. Right, exactly. You know? Yeah. Like it's automatically okay. Yeah. So I think even, but backing up from the question of raspberry, yes or no, there, there's, um, you know, yeast is a, is a huge uh, yeah. contributor. Yeah. And if you, if you read the literature, capital T, capital L on cider making, they'll tell you to use a white wine yeast or champagne yeast, or even potentially they may say use a cider yeast, but cider yeasts are just uh, repackaged and uh, price increased white wine yeast. It's like the, <laughs> the pink tax for women. That's the cider tax for yeast. Don't buy cider yeast, just buy a white wine yeast. Um, but, but, um, white wine yeasts are known to get out of the way of the fruit, to not add any character. They're supposed to just ferment the sugars in there and leave the essence and the soul of the fruit alone. And as you know, beer makers, beer drinkers, we know that yeast plays a huge role in the flavor and aroma of a beer and, and the fermentation mechanics as well, um, which can then have uh, subsequent uh, right. flavor and aroma changes. So I use beer yeast, I use liquid beer yeast, and I think that's a... Um, you know, we were the first cider company to use exclusively liquid beer yeast or beer yeast in general. Um, since then, there have been other folks who do use uh, beer yeasts and they're, they're really um, playing with a, a set of colors on their, to paint their picture that other cider makers are not. So from my perspective, if I want to make something interesting and unique and complex and layered, why would I not um, use every tool at my disposal? And yeast is a huge one for me, just as much as it is in beer. Um, the other thing that going way back early is also apple selection. Um, I, there is not as much, uh, diversity in commonly available apples, uh, as there is in commonly available malts. Um, and any brewer in America can, uh, get access to the same, uh, uh, malt bill that you would y use to make any beer in the world. Pretty much. I mean, it might be hard to get some European malts, but you can actually get them or you can get clo close clones of them in, in America. Um, some of the harder stuff to get people do just people, people pay the price to get, um, Maris Otter or whatever, but you can't buy some fruit that you might want to get as a cider maker. Um, there's just not that much diversity in apple. We deal less with, uh, apple, uh, flavor and aroma, uh, then I wish we could. That's not to say there's none. There's a huge difference between a Granny Smith. If you've eaten a Granny Smith apple, bright green, super tart, flavorless, hard, dense. Um, if you've eaten a, a Granny Smith apple versus a Red Delicious, which is a little bit more flavor, terrible tasting skin, mushy, 
anybody can tell the difference between those apples, blind even. You know, if you give somebody a slice of each, sure. they could they could tell which one's which. Um, so there there are differences in, in in apples, and when you get into more exotic ty- types of apple cider specific varieties, you get things like tannins and bitterness and um, other sort of nutty flavors and aromas, which can come through. But even in the most uh, wildish, uh, flavors of apples, most hard to get flavor, flavor varieties. I don't think there's as much difference between apples as there is between a super light crystal malt and, you know, a burned sure 600 level bond <laughs> yeah uh, you know roasted barley not right. there so um so so we're starting off from a little bit smaller of a color palette when we have our base fruit selections but we have just as much opportunity to you do yeasts and then i think we have even more opportunity to add uh ingredients that customers are, are happy to, to to buy so what uh when you're when you're choosing your yeasts talk to me about the creative process behind that uh, are there you know where you know you're trying to hit some flavor goals certain yeasts that you know will work well sure um you know do you choose different beer yeasts based on what the goal is for that or what fruit or other ingredient you're adding to it and then how how do you optimize the performance of that yeast in a cider fermentation right um yeast in cider is a bit of a a beer yeast in cider is, is a brave new world you can't um, I can't, as a brewer, you could, a beer maker, you could go to, you know, the yeast catalog and you can read, here's the attenuation levels and here's the fermentation temperature, ideal fermentation temperatures. And this is what happens if you ferment it warm. This is what happens if you ferment it cold and all these, you know, don't add this, uh, fermentation aid, do better with this malt, all this kind of stuff. None of that exists for cider. So you're very much on your own. The way I tend to pick beer yeast, most years I, I would do uh, yeast trials. So I would go to the homebrew store and I'd say, hey guys, sell me whatever yeast you want. And they would say, oh, you should try this one. I like this one. I've been making beer with this one. And I would come back and just use the same apple juice and make, you know, one gallon batches of each yeah. and try to find some good yeast that are interesting. That that was had, had some success, but mostly what I found success in was drinking a lot of beer and thinking where is the yeast? How is the yeast contributing to this beer? So I vividly remember the first time I had Dupont Saison. And most of us might remember that time. You know, it's like, where were you when Kurt Cobain died? It's like, where were you the first time you had Dupont Saison? And I was blown away. I remember talking to the bartender, uh, the bottle shop, and I was like, why the hell does it taste like this? And he's like, the yeast. And I was like, give me some of that. Uh, so very much like... It's all the rusticity that they add to it. You yeah. Know, they just they just waft it through the farm yeah, before yeah. they... Yeah. They add extra rusticity. Yeah, that's a good word. So y- 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 using beer um, knowledge to, to select yeast is my fundamental, my, my most important way that I've, that I've collected yeasts to use for cider. That being said, the flavors that arise uh, during the fermentation of wort using the Dupont Saison strain are completely different than the flavors and aromas that arise using that strain in apple juice. They are not related at all. Um, we produce esters very, very different in this, in the uh, different part of the flavor wheel or whatever, um, from beer. Um, there isn't even a strong correlation between, um, uh, the, the, the volume of flavor produced, um, how loud that yeast flavor might come out in, in the, um, cider versus in the beer. But it, it, I have found that, um, there are some similarities like, you know, Pilsner yeast don't really get in the way of anything in the in the beer brewing process, and they really don't contribute anything in the cider making as well. Um, 
Hefeweizen yeasts are kind of gross in, uh, they're very strong and pronounced yeah. in beer, right? And they don't really do anything good in cider. I haven't figured out how to make them do anything good in cider. Um, we use English ale yeasts. Um, one, one of our most popular yeasts that we use is the London ESB Y yeast 1968. We use that one a lot. And in, uh, I started using that one because I was reading some homebrew forum and somebody was like, oh yeah, it produces, uh, aldehydes which are, can be like green apple aromas. And I was like, give me that. Um, <laughs> and so we actually baby that yeast to produce extra aldehydes, which mm. layer the apple flavor. And you don't necessarily want that in, in a beer, but we're um, abusing that yeast in the fermentation process so that it dumps a ton of aldehydes, which um, are not offensive in the ciders that we, that we make. So sometimes I should be there, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes I'm, 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 uh, using yeasts uh, in ways that they're quote unquote designed to by the manufacturer. Yeah. And sometimes I have lucky, um, lucky breaks and find out things that, oh, if I ferment things super hot, um, and then I, you know, do battle with the sulfur that's produced, I can get some incredible flavors out of it that are not on the scope. I mean, I've talked to like the folks that, um, at Scott Labs and at uh, Lalvin and, and they're like kind of they don't understand they don't want to get involved because they know it's a whole nother world they're they're proud of their decades of research in how to use these yeasts in beer and they don't want me coming along and messing up all their information but it is a lot of fun coming up with those yeasts um, those, those those you know do you use you got to use the 1968 the, the London ESB for the green apple yeast cider that we're making you don't want to make that for more of the softer rounder because you want those yeast flavors to you know, go towards that cider that you're trying to make. And we use, um, uh, I think it's called a 13 juice, um, Imperial, Imperial use. Yeah. Um, we use that one for like more of our tropical where we're literally adding tropical fruit in addition sure. to the cider. So it's pretty, we're layering flavors and aromas, both from the yeast and from the ingredients that we're adding. So these, this hazy IPA yeast actually works pretty well for making, uh, yeah, that's tropical. actually, that's actually one that does translate. Um, huh. it, it throws off passion fruit and guava and all that crazy stuff that interesting that you're not sure if it really throws off in a beer, but it really throws it off in uh, a fructose fermentation. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. When you, uh, when you say you, you stress, uh, the London ESB yeast, is that just a temperature stress under pitching? Yeah. Under nutrient, what, how, uh, the under nutrient and temperature, um, the, the pitches, it, they, they work their way up to however much, however many cells they need yeah. to get the job done. Um, but cider uh, different from beer. Yeah. We have no nutrients. Yeah. Zero, effectively zero right. nutrients in our juice. So we add uh firm K um, to every fermentation at about 30% sugar depletion. Some people add it in the beginning. Some people add it at 50%. Some people do both. We've just found it that it works for us at 30% depletion, but we've really honed in on the, the, the grams, milliliters that we add, um, so that we, we can get it to produce some, some more offensive flavors in a, in a low, a, a low volume of offensive flavors to have some background, um, complexity in there. Offensive being in air quotes of sorts here. Yeah, yeah like yeah. a small amount of diacetyl is okay in certain beer styles. And um, we want to have like a, a, a small amount of aldehydes in um, certain cider styles. Just to add some extra layers yeah. of complexity. Yeah, to layers it. for it. And so you know, it's, some cider makers may be listening to this and be like, oh, just use great apples. Yeah, okay, but we don't grow the great apples here. We grow these more common apples. Um, so this is how we I've developed a culture of cider making 
by layering flavors, not just relying on the best fruit, but, but bringing other ingredients and bringing process really to the whole thing as well. And, you know, there's space enough for all of that, right? You know, there is, there is yep. in the, in the same way that there are, there's great whiskeys and there are great botanical spirits that, oh, re- yeah. that require, you know, a nuanced approach to, you know, both the base spirit and the herbal blend yep. that goes into yep. it. So can you make, you know, sure. Something that is, uh, you know, just, you know, pure apple focused cider right. or using apples yeah. to create yeah. uh, as a base for some beverage that, that yeah. pulls in these other things. Too. I mean, I like Ale Apothecary and Coors Light, so it's, it's all good. Well, I'll <laughs> forgive you for the latter there. Um, you're more of a Miller kind of guy? No, ban- banquet. I mean, <laughs> okay, if you're going to yeah, go for Coors, it can't, can't be yeah. light. It's got to yeah. be banquet. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't hate banquet. Mm-hmm. I live in Colorado. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of a rite of passage. Um, but let's, let's, uh, I'm curious, talk to me about the fermentation. You know, what is, what's the, sure. you know, what is your typical beer yeast fermentation of yeah. cider look like? And then, you know, as you're doing this, what are, what are the you know, things that you look out for, um, pitfalls and, you know, trouble spots and, you know, timing, uh, temperature and those yep. kinds of pieces. Yeah. Um, Cider is actually pretty hard to make on a small scale. Um, mm. Home scale, any home brewer with a halfway decent or even pretty bad home brew setup can make a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale clone. It's not that hard. The recipe is known. And if you follow the steps, you'll get the beer basically to taste the same. Um, it's very hard to make. I pity the fool that tries to make uh, my revival hard apple at home. I couldn't make it at home on a home scale. It's too complicated. Um, so I'll speak about it from a commercial perspective. Sure, sure. And, you know, if you're a home, home cider maker, good luck. Um, you know, we're bringing in fresh juice. I full- love the challenge there. Yeah. The challenge is right yeah. there. Ain't okay. going to happen. Don't, don't try it. Try something else with your life. Um, uh, we start off with whole juice. Um, we don't, ha- we have the luxury again of being in the Pacific Northwest. So we can order up, um, a full tanker, 5,500 gallons or more of fresh juice. And, and these are apples. This is a juice that was an apple on a Tuesday. It was crushed on a Wednesday and delivered to us on a Thursday. So extremely fresh. Um, we do store apples whole in the Pacific Northwest. So I can buy whole apples. You know, the harvest starts in, in October or so in, in earnest. And I can buy on October 1st, I can buy last year's apples and they're still in good shape, good quality. They've been held well in these really these crazy warehouses yeah, that I mean, are like uh, filled with CO2 so yeah. that they can't. And lots of science. Yes. Yeah. So they can't oxidize yep, yep. or age. It's it's Yeah. And when they open the door, one of those rooms, that's it. You got to get those apples out. And you got to process them right away. So, yeah, we get these great apples at a really low People cost. People can't walk into those no, you because there's it, no oxygen. You. In the, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a luxury that we have in the Pacific Northwest, um, that we have these great, these great apples available to us. So we don't press apples. Um, I press pineapples, which maybe we can talk about, but, um, I press, uh, pineapples, but not apples anymore. I press some, some specialty apples. If there are small growers in the area that have really cool varieties, I'll bust out the press for that. But we're, we're primarily, primarily bringing in fresh juice. Um, we, uh, the, the bricks or Play-Doh gravity target is specified, uh, by us to the juice processor. So they're going to be blending different varieties of apples to get to our, our bricks target. 
um, the pH and TA, we, we actually look at TA a lot more than pH, TA being t- total, total acidity or titratable acidity. Yeah, so we prefer that one. That's what humans taste. Humans don't taste pH. They taste TA. And there's not, it's not a linear number between the linear relationship between the two numbers. So we spec TA and we spec um, a, a pH range. We don't really care about that pH. But anyway, the juice the, shows the up. The TA is consistent or do you change it? It's a little bit on, of a range. Okay. Um, and the range gets... Challenging to meet that range as the season progresses because um, apples in storage lose acidity. Hmm. So Granny Smith is the most commonly available high acid apple, and Granny Smith price goes up and up and up throughout <laughs> the season because if you want to make a consistent product year round, you need to add more and more Granny Smith or malic acid, powdered malic acid, which is fine, but powdered malic acid has a different taste to it than a, a, the same TA Granny Smith juice does. Hmm. So you got to be a little careful with your blending there. Uh, but but anyway, the juice comes to us within our chemistry specs and big old tanker, and we pump it in with a huge pump and put it into our big fermenters. Cider makers tend to operate on a larger scale than an equal-sized brewery. So my tanks are 85-barrel tanks, and 85 barrels, some brewers are going to be like, whoo, that's big. Um, but we're making we're making like seven or 8,000 barrels a year. It's pretty big, but not huge necessarily because that's how big the tankers are. The tankers are big. So sure. when they come, you want to be able to put them in all at once. So, um, yeah, and it goes in. Um, you also don't have to have a brew house here. So, zero brew uh, house. Yeah. Yo. <laughs> yeah, no, nothing hot, which is oh. nice. Um, so then we're adding, uh, we, we add a, a, a pectic enzyme, pectinase, which helps break down um, the pectin in the juice, which really aids our fermentation or our filtration process later mm-hmm. on. Not necessary, but it's good for us. And then, um, and then we pitch yeast. We usually pitch the same day, and we tend to underpitch because I'm a cheap bastard. Um, and we we'll, sometimes we'll build a starter. We'll get some. We'll get an underpitch in the day before, and if I have some some fresh juice previously, build, and you're also talking about this build like it up. massively fermentable thing. Oh, that you it's have just there, you know? sugar ready to go. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and we don't do any oxygenation. The the, the juicing process is keeps all the oxygen in there, or more mm-hmm. accurately, there's no boiling process to blast off the oxygen. Right. So no, there's no oxygen in the building. So no cider maker knows the word oxygen. Um, and so we pitch, pitch liquid yeast, um, and the fermentation dynamics are largely similar to beer at that point as far as the timeline, the temperature goes. The temperature is an art, um, so I can't really give you too many too much information there, but other than, tr- other than try your own thing, see what happens. Fermentation happens in five, six, seven, eight, ten days, depending on how well we hit the temperatures. It's very similar to beer, a little use, bit faster. Or jacketed glycol tanks? Jacketed glycol tanks. Okay. We do not use cones on the bottom because mm. we do not repitch. We do not harvest and repitch, um, which is a cost. That's a frustratingly high cost. Um, but the fermentation... For a cheap bastard like you. Yeah, exactly. It's, it annoys the hell out of me. But we can't get... Uh, fermentation is really... Juice ferment... Fructose fermentations are really hard on yeast. They just go for broke and they have nothing left in their little tiny gas tanks when they're done. Um, and so I'm not aware of any cider makers in America that consistently repitch yeast, harvest and repitch. So I think that, uh, cones are not necessary. It's just wasted space, right? So we dish, uh, we ferment, um, at about 30% sugar depletion. I mentioned this, we add, uh, for K and how much you add that's art as well. Um, we'll do a little pump over as well. Um, on a big tank, I think it's just fairly common in, in the brewing world as well. If you have a huge tank, very tall, very big, very 
massive. Doing a pump over is good to add some oxygen to uh, stir up the yeast. The yeast can get a little bit tired and sit to the bottom. So we'll do a pump Plus over. Maybe some little bit of temperature stratification within exactly. the tank too. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you open the top of an 85 barrel tank while it's fermenting, the thing is rolling. Um, there's just a huge amount of temperature stratification. Yeah. That means hot moving up and cool moving down. Convective currents through the tank. Yeah. yeah especially if you have a jacket on as well, everything on the, on the sides just drops. So um, yeah. And the fermentation completes the thing about the, the the one takeaway if you're gonna if you're thinking about making cider and you come from a beer background is that all ciders will always go to 0.998 or zero bricks they will not stop above you need to make sure that you're planning for them to go to zero bricks if it's stuck at one and a half brick or one and a half play-doh and you're like oh it's done it's not done <laughs> yeah it, it yeah. will keep going um there is n- there every every speck of sugar in, in juice is completely fermentable it's 99.9 fructose and a little bit of glucose um and there's no complex sugars so it'll just go all the way uh, so our fermentations finish um and we aim for a, a real straight line fermentation chart we don't like to have that lag at the bottom. So our pump overs can get a little more aggressive as the last uh, day or two um, c- kick in. Uh, and then for us, we run these, there's no diacetyl rest. We just go on oh, when it hits terminal, you're done. You're ready to fly. The only reason why we might put a little bit of rest is there's going to be a, a ton of uh, residual CO2 dissolved in the liquid at that point, which can make further processing a little bit of a pain in the ass because we go right into a filter and our filter doesn't like CO2 in uh in in suspension in the liquid so we might give it a 24 or 48 hour time just to kick kick off some of the um, co2 in solution and then uh, we run through a cross flow and this is where things start getting a little non-brewer our cross flow filter is a primarily a wine technology most wineries use cross flow technology it is wild uh it's an hour-long podcast by itself so maybe i'll just put a pin in that and you can Google, you can Wikipedia Crossflow if you want. It's extremely expensive, but the takeaways are there's no uh, consumable filter media. So I don't pay per run. I pay, I buy $10,000 modules every six or 10 years. Um, and they run in a single pass from milkshake, like, you know, just hit terminal to crystal clear 0.2 microns in a single pass. Uh, there's no adjustability to the, um, the output, I can't say, oh, I want a little bit of a haze at all. Uh, and 0.2 micron is actually nominally sterile. So we have a very, very, very clean product coming out of, um, out of our fermenters and through our, our cross flow filter. Um, from there, it goes right into our bright tanks and our bright tanks, our normal beer bright tanks, jacketed, it's got cladding on it, insulation. And then we, um, do blending. So we might blend, um, 50% of this juice yeast ferment with 50% of that juice yeast ferment, uh, we might, um, uh, or, or 70, 80 or whatever, so 70, 20, 70, 30, God, math, old man. <laughs> uh, we're going to be adding other ingredients at that point. So if I'm making my pineapple cider, it's getting fresh pineapple juice put into the bright tank. Um, we're going to be dry hopping. We're going to be uh, adding spices. We're going to be making teas in other small kettles and pouring the teas in. Uh, whatever blending happens, happens in the bright tank. And then we go to package. And then uh, the packaging is the same as it is for beer, kegs, cans. Uh, the next step is crucial for us. We pasteurize all of our cans and bottles. And that is um, uh, to prevent any further refermentation. Because, again, everything, ciders always want to go to zero. So if you add back any sugars at all, so fresh pineapple juice, for instance, right. that will want to ferment 
theoretically in some sterile environment, you could keep all the yeast out. But the least sterile environment known to humanity is a brewery. So um, the, the concept, you know, we're not uh, hubristic enough to think that we could make, uh, you know, a completely clean product. So we always no pasteurize. how good your cross-flow filter is. Yeah, I mean, we're not cheesemakers here. So yeah. um, we, we pasteurize all of our cans and bottles, and that is effectively gives like forever shelf life stability from a, micro, from a microbiological sure, perspective, sure. not necessarily from a flavor perspective. Um, yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit about your creative process, about building flavors, you know, what you found does work, what doesn't work, but just how you approach these things where you find inspiration, how you source these mm-hmm. other ingredients beyond apples um, and find uh, compelling blends of them. Before we do that, oh, you like wildly aromatic IPAs and tropical lagers? Good thing Omega designed thialized yeast for just that reason. Thialized yeast are a new tool for brewers to bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malts and hops. And wait, there's more. Omega yeast makes yeast to order with a consistent one-week lead time, ensuring peak freshness and reliability. Also, sustainability doesn't have to cost you more. Try Robert's PolyPros multi-pack can handles designed for sustainability and cost savings. Grip pack rings are biodegradable and average five cents per unit. Craft pack carriers are recyclable and designed with 30% less plastic. Plus, you can save up to 25% on costs. Enjoy easy application with inline applicators and 24-7 support. It's easy to go green with these multi-pack handles. Visit go.robertspolypro.com slash cbbpod to request free samples and start saving today. And ABS Commercial has been a full-service brewery outfitter for 10 years. They are proud to offer brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts to brewers across the country, as well as equipment for distilling, cider-making, wine-making, and more. They know the ins and outs of the brewing and installation process and can design the perfect setup for you, whether you're just starting out or looking to expand. Contact them today at sales at abs-commercial.com to discuss your customized brewery needs. ABS Commercial, we are brewers. So, you know, you've mentioned some of the brands like, uh, you know, the Hoppercot, mm-hmm. uh, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, you know, talk to me about the flavor inspiration that mm-hmm. you find. What, how you have found hop blends that work well in cider. Mm. Again, you've got all the hops that you want right here at your disposal. Yeah. Um, where you find other fruits, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, what you have found complement your cider as well. Sure. And, uh, and then, you know, how those then end up finding their way into and expressing properly. Through yeah. cider. I, you know, I, I think it's a, a good way to, that I like to think about that is the same way that brewers might think about their entire portfolio. You know, you don't, you're, you're going to, you're going to have to be a, a fairly, uh, prolific brewery to make an Italian Pilsner, a French Pilsner, a Czech Pilsner. And, a, you know, so most people are going to have maybe one or two light. Or you just are just notch brewing. and Exactly. You know, you make it all, right. <laughs> I mean, sure, it's all good, right? So so my goal, you know, I'm a business owner as well. So it's like, yeah. let's make sure that I have a cider for every drinking occasion. I think there's a beer for every drinking occasion. Yep. And until Reverend Nats came along, I didn't feel like there was necessarily a cider for every drinking occasion. So there was a cider for the person that didn't want to order the beer. There was one. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Uh, what do you have on tap? Yeah, it's a cider. I think it's an apple cider. I actually, it's kind of, it's a sidebar here. I was, uh, there's a, ter- I hate this so much. Uh, there's a thing, you know, in the, in the, on the menu, you go in and, oh, cider, what do you have? Oh, it's a rotating, it's a Revenant's rotating. 
and they're like, okay, which, which one is it? And they're like, uh, it's the rotating one. I, I don't know. And I got so pissed off. This is like happens everywhere, right? It's just like, oh, yeah, we just have a cider on tap. I don't know what it is. So actually, I literally made a cider called Rotating Seasonal. That's the name of the cider. <laughs> Which I thought was like funny as shit. I mean, I was like, yeah, it was yeah, a yeah. drunk moment, right? Sure. So sure. I had this drunk moment. I was in this bar. I texted my distributor guy, my distributor brand manager. I was like, hey, will you guys hate me if I make a cider called Rotating Seasonal? He's like, yeah, but you can go ahead and do it anyway. Um, and nobody got the joke. It was such a nightmare. My sales team hated me. The bars hated me. Every social media DM was like, what's the rotating seasonal? I'm like, it's called rotating seasonal. Yeah. So we don't get the, it's like naming your bar, the library. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Oh, I'm going to the library. It's like, Oh, that's really fine. Okay. Eh, whatever. There's a beer, there's a beer bar in town called beer, B E E R. It's impossible to Google beer Portland because you'll never find the place. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. So, so I think, yeah, going back to your question, the, the point is to try to make ciders that are diverse from each other, far enough away from each other that you c- can make a choice about which one you want rather than be, feel stuck between a couple. So there's seasonality to it. Do I want something, uh, maybe that would go good warmed up ciders go can can go well warmed up unlike most beers um for the winter time something that's uh, can hold up to a really heavy dinner that you might um you know eat in the winter uh you know what what would a spring cider look like well it'd be bright and fresh um uh, but but you know again not too sweet i don't make really anything really sweet um, you know, what is a cider, summer cider like? Well, there's a lot of summer drinking occasions. There's like going to the park and have a picnic. There's sitting on the front porch. There's lawnmower ciders, lawnmower beers. There's mountain biking beers, which I've, I have ciders, which I've got one. Um, cause I, I sponsor a lot of mountain biking events and I ride a lot and I always wonder what is that one thing that I want after a ride? So I made one just for that moment. Um, then there's more of like the, the fall seasonal where you start to feel like, you know, maybe fresh apple juice is on your mind a bit more. Um, you know, there's sophisticated ciders that are, have many, many flavored layers and you might, uh, I might describe them to you just using three of the ingredients, but there's actually 12 ingredients underneath those 12, those three that I'm never going to talk about. Or I might just have a cider that's just pineapple and you're like, sounds great. And you drink it and you're like, that's a pineapple cider check. And then you're going to carry on your conversation, not talking about cider. You're just going to enjoy the moment, sort of the, the, the PBR of, you know, cider. Right. So I, I, I'm always trying to find, uh, you know, what is that drinking occasion and what piece of my portfolio am I missing? Not from like a, I got to maximize every cider sale, but like, I want to continue to make these new ciders and I want each cider to stand apart from the other ones that, that are around it and that have come before it and, you know, will come after it. So a lot of people happy, right? Yeah. I'm trying to make more people happy. trying to make myself happy really. Cause I I like drinking my own cider. So I want to have like, you know, that cider for that, that one moment. That that being said, there are some ciders that I make that I don't (laughs) really like. (laughs) Yeah. I just said that out loud. Um, I, I make them for other people. You know, I just, they're there. I make them exactly how I want them to taste, but I, I rarely find myself in a mood for that one. Um, and then there are other ciders that I make that I find myself in the mood to drink a lot. So sure. Well, when you make hop cider now, what are, uh, where do you find those hops? And then, uh, and you know, is it still the same blend? Still yeah. the, the Amarillo? Yeah. You know, hop ciders, Cascade? hop ciders are a really fascinating piece of cider history in America. Uh, the earliest, most recent early, earliest, uh, cider that had hops in it was made by Anthem there. They were in Salem area, Salem, Oregon. And um, I don't exactly remember the, the story, but they, they came out with a um, anthem hopped cider, and it, it did very well. This is in two thousand, 
14 or so, something like that, 13. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I made hopricot, which was a, you know, a Dupont Saison. It had the wit beer spices in it as well. So it was a really complex thing. And it was very clearly hops. Um, and, and there, there were a number of hop ciders that were, that were coming out in 13, 14, 15, 16. We had a hop cider festival that we um, put on every year for like five or six years in a row. And then hop ciders waned and mm. they, uh, we no longer, uh, make hoppercot. We pulled it off the market due to declining sales. So I think we've discovered that cider customers don't really want hop. They don't want to mm. think they're drinking hop ciders. They actually want to drink hop ciders because, Revival, my uh, classic flagship apple, has um, mosaic in it, uh, and we don't call that out on the packaging at all. We call that we say, we mention it in the ingredient list. Um, hops can be a, an allergen to some folks. Sure, we sure. mention the ingredient list. Um, transparent, but it's not a marketing point. It's not. It's an anti. We don't want to tell them anybody at all because they won't want it if they think that it has hops in it. Um, because people, that kind of consumer is just thinking hops mean bitterness. Hops mean bitterness or hops mean beer or I don't understand. It's too much information. I yeah. just want something simpler. I don't want to think about my choices. Um, uh, St. Citron, which is the the mountain biking cider um, that has uh, four different kinds of citrus. This is a, I love this lie. I'm lying. I'm telling people I'm lying. It has four citrus fruits in it. It has lemon, lime, grapefruit, and kumquat. It actually doesn't have grapefruit in it. It has Cascade. And we treat Cascade to throw off all those grapefruit um, flavors, both a little bit of the bitterness as well um, as the uh, flavor and aroma on it. So no grapefruit in there, just um, Cascade hops. So, and we don't advertise that one as a hop cider either because no one would want it. We advertise it as a grapefruit, you know, multiple citrus and or grapefruit. Or you mentioned the flavor of grapefruit, exactly. which is there even if it's Clearly not, in there. Yeah. not derived necessarily totally, from yeah. it. It's, it's a small amount. It's not even, it's, sure. it's nowhere near what you would dry hop an IPA. It's about a third of a pound mm. per barrel that we're putting in um, for, for that one. So I still continue to use hops and I go to hops as an ingredient. Um, but from a marketing perspective, I steer away from um, making it. Not to say that there are no hop cider customers out there. My friend in, in your state, um, Brad Page from Colorado Cider Company, he makes a great cider called uh, Grasshopper. Grasshopper. Ah. Mm -hmm. It's A-H at the end. Uh, lemongrass and hops. Uh, he told me what the hops were one time. CTZ, I can't remember. Hmm. Um, he's been making forever and he continues to make it. Yep. It sells pretty well. Um, so I don't think there's no market for hop ciders, but, um, it's not one that we continued to be able to, um, find customers for in the Pacific Northwest. Sure. Sure. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about Tapache for a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah. This is something we, uh, again, you know, go back to the, the craft and brewing story that Kate wrote on, uh, on Tapache, uh, with Nat, but, uh, let's, let's talk about, you know, your foray into Tapache. Mm -hmm. Continued foray. My, my, uh, career, my Tapache career. So I started making Tapache. Tapache is a. A uh, traditional Mexican drink made in um, mostly in the rural parts of Mexico where they grow pineapples. And in Mexico, primarily, it's made using the outer skin of the pineapple. Um, there's very little fermentable sugars in there, but there's a lot of flavor. Uh, and then they will, you know, eat or process the the meat, the inside of the yellow part of the pineapple elsewhere. Uh, so it's a way to make alcohol out of the, the, the refuse of the skinning of the pineapples. They'll also add uh, piloncillo sugar, which is this dark brown, um, unrefined sugar. So it's just a sugar cane that's, you know, like sort of like bamboo stalks, uh, squeezed, uh, crushed and squeezed. And then the juice that comes out is 
sugarcane juice, um, like wheatgrass juice, right? But sugarcane juice, super sweet. And then um, they just slowly evaporate it off. And what's left behind is this crystallized. I mean, it's how you make sugar, right? I'm telling you how to make sugar. But it's, it's, it, it, a lot of people don't even understand the concept of how you make sugar. This is like a natural product, right? It's only when it becomes heavily bleached and refined does it become table sugar. Um, Piloncio is just this um, very dark brown. Um, and it's called Piloncio because it's in these little cones, pilon, little pylon. Mm. Um, and that's how it's uh, typically manufactured. The little cones, like little muffin tins in, in Mexico. And it's very, very common. And a lot of Latin American countries make their own version. Panela is another name for. Um, very similar product. So um, the, the traditional recipe for tepache in Mexico is pineapple skins and, and um, piloncillo and maybe some cinnamon uh, and some water. And you can imagine the fermentation from there. It's just a, it just ferments the sugar. The pineapple adds some flavor. It's usually consumed fresh, like three days fresh. Um, so you get some alcohol, lightly alcoholic, still sweet as well. Um, we... Um, uh, don't we don't use the the skins? We use the whole pineapple. Uh, Depache is a bit like uh, American pie in uh, or apple pie in America. There's general rules, but everybody makes their own. You put crust on it? <laughs> sure, no, sure. I don't put the top on. We make a lattice top? No, I, I put cinnamon. No, I don't. I put cheese on my whatever. So there's a lot of flexibility in Depache without sure. quote unquote breaking the rules or whatever. So. Um, we use the whole pineapple, uh, which is pretty unusual, but it's it b- brings a, t- a ton more pineapple flavor than I think some of the traditional Mexican um, tapaches do. Um, we also add some cinnamon and cloves and allspice, which is fairly common in the tapache recipe. Um, the process is hard to do, and I would recommend that listeners, subscribers, go check out the archive because it's a pain in the butt to make. Um, on a commercial scale, it's really actually really easy to make on a home scale as long as you get the timing right because you're drinking a partially fermented product. Um, so you have the pineapples, you you know wait till it starts to bubble, you're tasting it, you're tasting it. Pineapples, interestingly, have about 6% potential alcohol, 7% potential alcohol in them. So if you're, um, you know, if you're t- still tasting some sweetness, but you can, you know, there's been some active fermentation, well, maybe you're in the two or three or 4% range. So it's not really going to get weirdly alcoholic on you. Uh, fairly easy to, to do on a home scale. And maybe you put some of the spice spices in during the beginning of the fermentation. We actually make a tea out of those spices, take whole spices and simmer it with water. And then we have this tea, which can, we can pour in at the end to the right, to the right amount. Um, it's uh tepache in Mexico is, is traditionally not against this tradition. Anybody can do what they want. Um, oftentimes mixed with beer. Sometimes they'll pour some beer in to, to start the fermentation. Hmm. You don't need to, cause there's so much yeast on the outside of a pineapple. It's, going to go by itself. Um, so it's fairly common to have the sort of beer influence in Tepache. And I, of course, latched onto that piece of the the legend of Tepache pretty strongly. And right away, I started making Tepaches that were designed to be blended with beer. And so when Tepache was first released, and every year we make it, on the side of the bottle, it says, how to drink Tepache. Mix uh, one bottle of Tepache with two bottles of beer. And you know, beer options include you know light lagers, Hefeweizens, dark beers. I like to say that Tepache makes every beer taste better. Um, first time I ever had Sam Adams Utopias was with Tepache. First time I ever had Dark Lord was with Tepache. West Vodern 12 with Tepache. So um, we we did an event every year called Night of a Thousand Tepaches, where we would blend Tepache at a time with uh, beer from uh, local breweries. I partnered with a bunch of the local breweries, a dozen or 20 local breweries and find their favorite beer to blend with the pache and the varieties. Widmer did one, a Bel- raspberry Belgian quad one time. Um, 
Ruse Brewing did a Britannomyces wild ale with peach. Um, the, the classic, you know, crowd favorite is like a smoked Hellas goes great so so the, the hmm. you can tapache is so can versatile absolutely see that work it's, it's incredible it goes really well with everything it doesn't go great with really piney dank ipas i hmm. don't love it with with piney dank ipas so we do this event every year and people would bring you know their whales into the event to to open up and and the, the the humor of you know opening this super rare beer and then bastardizing it by blending it with the pache you know you drink dark lord you're like that's a good beer ah, it tastes better with the pache you're here to tapachify uh, yeah. yeah the beer world no that's that's cool well so it's a spontaneously then or Spontane. i shouldn't say spontaneously for me should say you yeah. know fermented uh, with naturally Un- unwashed yeast. unwashed pineapples that's kind of the key for us for sure yeah you could pitch a yeast but there's really no reason to every time we make tapache there is um uh, a bit of chance to it. We use unwashed pineapples. The way we that what we buy the pineapples is that the green spiky bit has been left behind in the field, so we just get the tapache ball, so mm-hmm. to speak. But there's no reason you can't just go to the store and buy a bunch of pineapples, chop the green thing off, grind them all up, and 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 go from there, as you can read about in the recipe. So it's really uh, pretty versatile about how you do it, and it'll always kick off uh, an alcoholic fermentation, but it may very well kick off. Um, and other kinds of undesirable fermentations as well. So that like three, four, five day window is really important where you can drink it before it finishes fermenting and then other bad things can happen to it. You know, an active fermentation is like safer to drink if you're not sure what's going on than one that's sat for a while. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, we've, uh, we've been talking for an hour now. I do want to talk to you about, you know, maybe, uh, you know, the recent move, yeah. the, this decision that you've made, mm-hmm. uh, that you and the board for the company have made yeah. to wind down operations. Yeah, to call it quits after 12 great years. 12 years of pushing the envelope and cider and bringing flavor here. Yeah. Talk to me about what uh, you know. What took you all down that road. What mm. were some of the the moments of realization? I mean, I think that you know, if, in every business, there are always struggles and there are always things that you push yeah. through. Yeah. You know, and then there are those moments where you're like, okay, maybe right. things are changing to a point where I have to make a different decision and that my sheer optimism isn't going to be the right. thing that carries me through this. Yeah. Talk to me about that decision-making process and what some of those factors were that kind of, that, that changed the, the the look of reality for yeah. you. Yeah, well, I think you, you said it. You go into operating, owning a business, starting a business with a lot of optimism, um, and you're, you're maybe jumping on particular market trends or, um, other opportunities in the, you know, the broader market that you think this now is the time. Uh, and we definitely did that. I think I, I, I frequently say that the best time and place to start a cider company in the history of the world is Portland, 2011. That's when we started. Um, there was enough uh, cider and edu- edu- education about cider already done by some of the earliest pioneers. Some of those folks couldn't survive and went out of business by the time 2011 rolled around. But there was enough um, knowledge about um, a, a cider as a base to to let me, you know, use that. And I wasn't trying to create a new category. There was already everybody had already had cider. Most of us got drunk on it in, in college and didn't like the experience. But there was also already some no- level of knowledge. There was no angry orchard when I started um, Reverend Nats. So we didn't have a category leader. The category leader was Woodchuck, but it, it was a weak category leader. And it was way the hell over there in Vermont. It was kind of a regional thing in some ways. So it was really an opportunity um, 
you know, to, to jump on it. And at the time I was, um, doing, uh, pro- computer programming pro- program, uh, software management. Um, and I was 13 years in that career and ready for a change. And yeah, I mean, it was just, I told you the story sitting around the table with my friends and I was just like, God damn it, I'm going to do it. Um, and I didn't really know at the time that that was the best time and place to start, but it became pretty obvious pretty quickly. Uh, the, the reception that I got in Portland, the embrace that I got from the, uh, Portland brewer community was, you know, instantaneous and very welcoming. I remember, um, my carb stone fell apart. I was making cider and packaging cider in my garage and my carb stone fell apart. And I, uh, you know, texted, um, a, a local brewery owner and I was like, Hey man, can I borrow a carb stone? And he's like, yeah, come over. And I did. And then I remember um, I asked Breakside for a, a piece of hose. I, I broke a hose and he was like, come on down. And I think being the cider guy in a beer, uh, the, the, the beer knowledgeable cider guy in a beer town really helped me because I, made friends with all the brewers and, they, and none of them saw me as competition. Um, so, you know, very, very rapidly, I was able to get Reverend Nats into um, every tap room in Portland. It's extremely, it was extremely common to find Reverend Nats in um, any brewery, you know, cause it's very familiar to the brewers. I got the privilege of being invited to the first uh, Oregon Brewers Festival to have cider in it, you know, it had been around for 20 something years before, they invited cider in the first year. I, I uh, there's only one cider and it was mine, and um, we sold more kegs of cider than any uh, beer that year, um, which is you know it's fun to say that, but it's really just reflective of the fact that they should have done it earlier. Because there's they, there's a whole bunch of beers, a whole bunch. There's of just beers. one cider. You could put I mean, dog poop on this yeah. and be like, oh, you sold more dog poop than anything because it's just different, right? So, but being able to embrace that was really important to me and. It's like it's why the blueberry wheat beer sells more than you yeah because it's, it's the only fruit else. beer on a exactly. brewery's lineup yeah. like you know yeah. it's gonna, but, I've got six IPAs and they're all going to balkanize exactly that, yeah, that yeah. you know clientele yeah so I, but I also had like you know not just the the default welcome reception but a, like an honest welcome reception like I remember at my opening party for the tap room in early 2013 uh, Mike Wright the uh, founder of uh, Commons Brewery came. Um, Alan Sprintz, the, the founder Hair of the Hair of the Dog, came to my opening party, and um, that felt like, oh man, like I'm I'm here. Very early on, Jeff Alworth, Beervana blog, he listed Reverend Nats as one of the best breweries in Portland. He does this annual best breweries list, um, and he listed us as one of the best breweries, which was like top honor for me. Um, I've always said that like I'm a I'm a brewer who makes cider, um, and I was I, I thought I was that, and I think that that was the reception that I got. So those early years were extremely rewarding to me. Um, and we really started, and it was that same energy that was driving the development of craft beer. Absolutely. 2012, 2013, we were right there with them. 2016. It's crazy, yeah. right? Yeah. So I was definitely, um, capitalizing on that broader trend as well. And cider was growing as you know, incredibly well at that point too. We were, you know, at 30% growth year over year at that point. So, I was riding two different waves and, and really enjoying them. And then, you know, as, as we get bigger, as we get into, you know, multiple States and, you know, I had 29 employees at the peak, um, you know, there's, there's the American dream of grow, grow, grow. And the capitalism I had got investors who were putting their capital in expecting that capital to come back out. And, 
um, it didn't work out in a lot of ways. COVID was really tough on us. The changing distributor landscape was really tough on us. We had a distributor that is was in the craft space and now they're really not in the craft space. And we unfortunately had to suffer that transition with them. Um, we, you know, our tap room had to close in the beginning of COVID. We moved to this much larger facility that was never fully realized as well. So we put a ton, ton, ton of money into it and then couldn't actually use it. So there wasn't one reason why we just, why we made the decision, but I mean, you said it, it's like the, the, uh, the business, any business is constant struggle, um, every day or every week. And, and if you aren't the kind of operator who likes challenge and, and likes new things and likes solving problems, you'll, uh, quit earlier than somebody who does like solving problems. And that's really my favorite part of running this business is, has been, um, a constant newness and whatever is, uh, is, you know, gets thrown at me. I really enjoy or wherever, not just reactive, but also proactive, like looking out and saying, Oh, here's something that we can go do. Um, that's that we should, that, that can help us. Let's go attack that area, whatever the topic is. And, you know, you can only do that for so long before you either get a little complacent and stop going, going big when you could go big or the market really conspires against you. You know, one big thing is that we used to sell about 60% of our cider in Oregon and 40% in other States. California was a huge market for us. We, at one point were sold in 13 U S States. And, um, I like to say that we were like the icing on the cake. Uh, of a local cider. So North Carolina, great example. We sold a lot of cider in North Carolina. They had a pretty good local cider scene. They were the cake and we would come in and be the icing on top. So somebody says, oh, I like cider. I've had the local stuff. What's next? Oh, Reverend Nats, you should try. Oh, it's from Portland. Okay, I'll give it a try. Delicious. And they would enjoy some Reverend Nats. But as the cider market continues to mature, North Carolina comes up with their own icing. They got their own unique specialty cider company out there that's um, you know, that's the next more, more advanced level cider for, for an advanced level drinker. So our out of state business has declined tremendously since COVID and, and, and COVID, you know, encouraged consumers to buy local as well for, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm happy sure. for that. So, um, there's a, there's a bit of a natural course, I think that the business ran, uh, over the last 12 years and arguably maybe, maybe the course ran over the last 10 years and we've just sort of been Maybe I've been mountain biking too much in the last two years, but <laughs> it's 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 a very natural progression. I'm I'm definitely not sad at all yeah. um, for for where we find ourselves now. It has been an incredible run. We've done some incredible things there. I was just talking to one of my cider makers um, who was with me in some of the early days, and he said that he feel he felt like every week we were doing something that nobody else has ever done. And I was like, yeah, dude, we invented things that uh, other cider companies now have built their entire company around. Uh, one of my old bartenders, bar managers was like, hey, you remember making this and this? And I was like, man, I've forgotten more ciders than most cider companies will ever make. We just made so many ciders. We've probably made close to 10,000 ciders in the last 10 years. Um, collaborations out the wazoo. We used to make a new cider every single week for the tap room for 10 years. There's a lot of numbers right there. We'd do these events where we would have 40 or 50 new ciders for an event. Um, we made so much and I'm really proud of the team we put together and the, and the work that we did. And I guess, I guess supposedly the, you know, the quote unquote legacy that we leave behind as well, because in the last couple of weeks, since I've announced this, there are cideries from all around the world that I didn't know they existed. Sorry guys who are saying that I was a major inspiration for them to uh, open up their business. So that's, that's great. Um, I got a ton of help from the local beer, beer community when I started up and 
uh, to be able to, to know that other people are kind of realizing their dream as well because of some information that I was able to share is it's a good, good full circle. And it's, and it's a great opportunity for me to be like, all right, now some time for somebody else to, um, you know, be the inspirer, uh, while I go do other things. Is there anything you regret about it? Yeah. Uh, a little bit things I could have done better. Um, Actually, I think the most important thing is in the last couple of years, we all had our own unique pandemic experience, right? And mine was was about, uh, the, the big one for me was realizing that today is the most important day. And this week is the most important week. Uh, and this month is the most important month. And prior to 2020, I was continually looking at if we can get to point X, then everything will be better. Or if we can just get to this other place in our business, then things will start to improve in this other part of our business. And 2020 taught me that that's not, I decided that wasn't how I wanted to run the business. Every day mattered and every day mattered more than any other day ever. Um, and that was really fantastic because I started to develop relationships with the community. We started to uh, donate a ton of product and do a ton of fundraisers for marginalized communities, BIPOCs and LGBTQ. And we've got um, a huge following now. Um, I have a huge amount of customers who don't drink cider, but they drink Reverend Nats. Don't drink alcohol, um, but they drink Reverend Nats. Um, and that's fantastic. I think the um, I'm a little bit disappointed that there aren't more businesses who are willing to uh, stick their necks out. We stuck our necks out a lot in 2020 during the protests. Um, and it really came back to reward us in, in many, many ways. And so I think my only regret is that it took me a bunch of years of purely focused on cider and growth and spreadsheets um, before I, you know, opened up my eyes to a bigger picture around me. And if I had done, if I could do it all over again, I would have, that's the only thing I would change is I'd be far more community focused, um, you know, from the very beginning and not, and focused on, you know, this day, this week, treating my employees um, better paying them better. Um, I've learned a lot in the last few years for sure. And I wish I could have done that earlier. Sure. Sure. All right. What was, was that were, what were the straws that you hit this year that, you know, that broke the camel's back? Mm. Obviously there's all sorts of things and it's always a multitude of reasons, you know, when yeah. you, when you really decide to, but you know, is it, you know, is it this need for some investment to try to hit growth numbers or why just watching this pressure or is this some sort of feeling like you also need to do something else? The other option obviously would be to sell the business. Yeah. But it's a little hard for you to do that right. since it's called Reverend Nats. You're not going to buy it unless I'm coming along with it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think the one, the one straw was, um, I was actually coming back from a, a big road trip. Uh, I was in Colorado. My kid just moved to rural Southern Colorado and I had some like three days of driving interspersed with some mountain biking on the way back. And uh, I was by myself and I just had a lot of thinking time. And I um, have been, you know, my wife and I have been talking about quitting River Nets since the beginning, really, you know, every, every year there's some moment where we're like, maybe this was the time. Um, so it was another, just, just another one of those normal opportunities to think about, um, you know, what we're doing with the business. And at that moment, I, at that, that, at that occurrence of, of that, of that feeling, I was like, oh yeah, this is it. And I think that the, the straw was really that there is no straw right now. And every other time I've been faced with this existential decision of yes, business, no business, 
there was an outside factor saying you need money or you're not going to make payroll or your lease is ending or you need your distributors, some, some other factor that I could uh, work and, and struggle and figure out and get a way through. Uh, and right now there's nothing wrong with the business. Um, of course there's tons of things wrong, but there's no one thing that's like an outside You're not influence. responding. You're I'm not, not responding. It's not reactionary. Right. So this was an opportunity for me. I could look and say, wait a minute, if I take the next six weeks to shut down the business, that will be good. Um, no problem making payroll. Um, we've got enough inventory to last. I've got some great final releases I want to make. Um, and it really gets us, you know, you're not closing down at the end of a winter where winters are tough on everybody, right? We're closing down at the end of the summer where things are a little more positive. So the more I started to think about it, the more I realized, oh, this is just, this could not be a better time. And, and I can't imagine there being a better time in the future. So that was really like the, the opposite of a straw, really. It was the lack of straws that really made me sure that this was the right time. The, the question always arises when you do this, you know, and close a business down that was it ever really worth doing. Mm. You know, the, we have this idea of success in America, mm -hmm. that success is growing something, growing, 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 selling, mm -hmm. making your millions and millions of dollars right. and then retiring on a beach somewhere. Right. right. Like that's, that's the American dream, which is a little different than say the European business dream, which is generally, you know, taking over the family business right. or starting a family business and handing it down to your kids right. and keeping this, you know, this legacy. But there's always, you know, whether, no matter where you are, there's always this idea of it succeeding and be living past you. We all strive for this, right. this kind of, uh, you know, to, to expand beyond the, the limited time of our lives right, right, right. and to be more impactful over more generations. Like how do we find this kind of posthumous right. grandeur, you know, for you, how do you, do you square that up? I mean, yeah. shutting the business down means this is the end of this legacy. Right. Yeah. I think there's two, I have two sort of, things I think about with regard to that, you know, question of, you know, ongoing legacy. One is a number of years ago, I was facing yet another existential crisis in the business. And I reached out to this guy, a, a local person who does uh, coaching and mentoring for um, startup, te primary technology software uh, startups and founders. And, and he said that he encourages all his founders to consider their startup an experiment. They're seeing if this idea that they have will work. And I took that two ways. One of, um, well, Reverend Ads didn't really work because here we are. But then I flipped it around and said, Oh, Revanats really, really, really worked. The experiment was was a success. You know, on year two, we sat down and did like a, a branding and mission statement and everything. I got all the lead actors in the business together, and we came up with this mission statement that Revanats is here to change the perspective of cider in the, in the United States, primarily among craft beer drinkers. That was the mission of the company. And the way we accomplished it was making unusual ciders. And... Um, we did that. Like if you talk to the, the response I'm getting from social media is like cider makers all around the world and breweries all around the world. Like, Hey, you did your huge impact and cider is so much different now because you've been involved in it. And so that's really like affirmation that it was definitely an experiment that is, that can be over now and can be over it with a, with a level of success and a level of accomplishment that, um, I would have been really excited about, you know, if somebody's lined me up for it 12 years ago. And 12 years ago, if somebody said, here is how the business is going to look. And in 12 years, you're going to end like this, sitting here talking to Jamie. 
would you like to do this business? And I would say, hell yeah, sign me up. Because it has been um, a job for sure, but it has been far and away the best job I've ever had. And I can't imagine having a better job. It's been terrible, terrible, terrible at times. Absolutely terrible. Um, but all, on balance, it's been by far the best job I've ever had. What are you going to do next? Uh, I have no idea. I'm going mountain biking next week. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I definitely, I decided on that drive back in Colorado, I decided that I would approach the closure of Reverend Nats with the same level of intention and passion that I've approached every other aspect of the business. So it's been really important to me to make sure that I'm you know, closing out my relationship with my vendors and my customers and my distributors um, with this, with, with a lot of, a lot of work and making sure that everybody gets, you know, uh, gets, gets mentioned, gets talked about, you know, we're resolved everything. Um, and, and so that's really been my focus. I haven't thought about really what's come next. I got to go get another job because I now I don't have any income. Um, I'm going to be unemployed, which is cool. <laughs> so I don't have, you know, it's not be six months in Mexico for sure. Uh, but I don't, I don't really know. I, I am, I mean, since, since we're on an industry podcast here, I do have a um, natwestbev.com. Um, you know, that the part of me that has spent a, a long time helping other, other people, other beverage producers is still really passionate and really enthusiastic. Um, I think more than it's, it's ever been. So I've got a couple of folks I'm already interested in helping one cider customer, one, um, ginger, non-alcoholic ginger, fermented ginger soda customer. Um, so if, if, you've, if, you've, if you've got a beverage, and I've helped people with kombuchas and hard coffees and not hard coffee, cold brews, and you, know, you name it, I've done a ton of different beverage projects. So um, I'm certainly motivated and very interested to hear what other people have got going on and seeing if there's, you know, I remember the first time I tried to get a barcode that took me like days and days and days to figure out what the hell is up with barcodes? Like how, who figures out what the, you figure it out. And now it's like, I, I can tell you how to get a barcode in 10 seconds. So that level of knowledge shouldn't be trapped inside one person. It shouldn't go to the grave with me. I got to be able to help out some other people. There are many, many Tapache collaborations left to come. Yeah, bring it on. All right. Well, I think this isn't the last we've heard from Nat West. And I think this is a great place to bring it to a close. G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with 24-7 service and support. Try Firm Cap Eco from Cary, available through BSG. Try Old Orchard's flavored craft juice concentrate blends in your next craft beverage. AccuBrew helps you detect problems before they ruin a batch. ProBrew has rotary can fillers in stock with a two to four week lead time. Omega's thialized yeasts bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your Malden hops. Go green with multi-pack handles from Robert's PolyPro. And ABS Commercial is your full service brewery outfitter. Of course, if you've enjoyed this episode and any others, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button if you haven't already. And of course, subscribers can go dig into our archives and see Kate's article on tapache that she wrote with Nat, a recipe for making your own tapache. It's delicious. And uh, you can add it to everything from smoked Hellas to uh, barrel-aged Imperial Stout. Mm -hmm. It's good anywhere. Um, you know, we already mentioned, uh, do a little bit of consult. You plan to do some more consulting in the future. And I mm -hmm. think that's probably the best way. Um, if, go find that Reverend Nats out on your shelves, especially if you're in a state that currently sells it. Yeah, there are some still on the shelves. Get it before it's gone. 
Nat, I uh, appreciate you sharing with us and doing it so openly. Thanks a lot for the time. That kind of vulnerability. Um, it's always a hard thing to talk about these things, but uh, you've got an amazing attitude. I'm happy to share. To go in it with. Uh, I hope we get to ride some mountain bikes again sometime awesome. soon. We with, will. Uh, whatever time you find yourself with, come out and visit me in Colorado sometime. Great. See you there. Yeah. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those who love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.